This is Radio Stockdale. Every now and then, we get a chance to expand our aperture here at the Stockdale Center. With the summer release of Top Gun Maverick, we have just that chance. Our guest host on this episode is Mark Levecki, the McDonald Distinguished Scholar of Ethics, War, and Public Life at Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy, where he speaks with Captain Ryan Bernacki, United States Navy retired, about Top Gun Maverick. Both Mark and Ryan separately have been guests on this podcast. This time, Mark is hosting Ryan on a wide-ranging conversation that celebrates the sequel to Top Gun the movie, reminisces about Captain Bernacchi's own military career, connects the film with ethics instruction at the Naval Academy, examines character formation through the eyes of Maverick, and examines some of the film's more complex handling of difficult ethical issues, including the tension military leaders face between successfully completing critical missions and keeping their personnel safe. You can find a link to that longer conversation on our website, and I commend it to you. For an abstract, we present this podcast, Top Gun, The Ethics of Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Hello, everybody. I am Mark Levecki. I am the McDonald Scholar for Ethics, War, and Public Life at Providence Magazine, a journal of Christianity, American Foreign Policy, and I've recently onboarded as a non-resident research fellow at the Naval War College, and I am thrilled to be joined today uh, by Ryan Bernacki, formerly of the United States Navy. He has done all sorts of things in the Navy. Uh, most recently, I met him when he was the Director of Leadership and Character Development at the U.S. Naval Academy. We were colleagues, but he has directed the Blue Angels. He has been an instructor at Top Gun, which is particularly pertinent for today's discussion. Uh, he has flown all sorts of aircraft from the, the F-18 uh, to other platforms, and Ryan, uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself beyond that, but thank you very much for joining me today, and it's great to great to talk with you about a great film. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Mark. It's been great uh, catching up with you again, and and um, I just saw the movie, saw it twice this week, and so, you know, there's a lot of, lot of Top Gun man- anthem playing around our household with my kids, <laughs> and it's just a fun time. It's really exciting, and brings me back to when the first movie came out yeah. and, and all that. So yeah, it's, it's really great to see you and, and thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's excellent. It's been a, it's been an event for us as well. And you, you got to see it. You were, you were smarter than I was about it. You saw it on IMAX. Well, yeah, it was actually my, my family's idea and some, a family friend uh, had set this up. So it was a father's day gift. So I, I was probably the last um, former Top Gun instructor to, to see the movie because um, <laughs> it was a couple of weeks to father's day, but we had that plan and it was, it was definitely worth the wait. And then my daughter is 12, which is, I was 13 when the first one came out. Um, the next day she said, Hey dad, can we go see the movie again? And Awesome. You bet. And so we we went to the the theater here in Annapolis, and uh, we just the two of us. It was great, and it was so fun um, sitting with her. And you know, there'd be a a scene or something would happen. I could lean over and say, Juliana, that that's a real thing, you know. Or like, and a good example is um, at the end where uh, you know they're going into the target and their their feet wet and the little battle formation thing, and uh, Maverick is given the decision, you know, go no go decision right and he kind of pauses and everyone's breathing in their masks and he says daggers attack and i you know that's a real call we'll make at the commit point and so i, I you know, and it's just like that you just say the the element call sign 
uh, and attack. Right. And it's kind of cool. And so I leaned over and I went, Hey, that's a real call. And my daughter goes, Oh, you know, it was cool. Now, yeah. now did, did you put on your aviator glasses to go see the movie? I did not. We, we didn't really dress up. Um, and so, yeah, I've seen lots of that, but, uh, now we, we, we went a little bit more incognito. It was actually really neat. We went with a really great friend, family friend of ours, um, who had been a, a blue angel years before I was, and, um, has become a, a really great mentor and great friends to us his, this whole family. Um, his wife, Amy had set this up and then, uh, two, um, Vietnam POWs, uh, also came with us. So, um, that was really, really neat. It was pretty amazing spending. We've gotten to know them a little bit. Um, and so the POWs who had been shot down, shot down. Yeah. Um, Everett Alvarez, who was shot down in an A4 and Bob Shoemaker was shot down in an F8 and they were, uh, the first and second Navy POWs. Um, and Ev spent the first six months there completely by himself, the only American. And, you know, eight and a half years total and, you know, years in solitary. And so these are really incredible people. And so to, to watch it with them and, and enjoy it with them, see the, you know, talk about it afterwards and just, you know, kind of, it brought all of us back. And at one point I was talking with Bob Shoemaker, who had retired as an admiral and, and we were just chatting and I was kind of pulling some cool stories out of him and, um, you know, spinning an F8 through a thunderstorm and stuff like that. And, uh, we were, um, just talking and he just kind of paused at one point and he said, we got to do some pretty fun things in those Navy planes, didn't we, Ryan? And I went, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, and it was just really powerful coming from him. So it was neat. I, somebody asked me, was there anything you didn't like about the movie? And we could certainly pick apart some, sure. you know, Hollywoodisms and whatever, but I, I didn't mind any of that. I, I love the, the movie and there, there's so many strengths of it, but the one thing I wish it had done was, was which the first one had more in was uh, to at least for a, a small vignette show the work that goes on at Top Gun. You had just graduated when they kind of enter the the bar or whatever recent standout graduates or something. But um, I would have loved to have seen a modern take, an updated version of the rigors of Top Gun, though it kind of unfolds as as you know the Maverick character is this you know. Top Gun and Anvil, right? He's just crushing these guys and trying to mold them into this next higher level and the, all these dogfight scenes, which were awesome and, and all that. And, um, but, you know, just the, the amount of studying that goes into it, the, the years of work it takes to get to that point, And then the amount of work that gets condensed into a, about a three month period going through the course. And, you know, the, just, it's, there's just so much work. It's a really cool, really fun job, but but the ratio of you know time where you're you're flying and, and doing really neat things versus all the prep work that goes into right. it is not depicted in the movie. And, and <laughs> right. It's really not something you know. It's like anything you know. You put so much work into any pursuit. No, that's fantastic. So just just to, to shove this in there before we get further in, you were both uh, you were a Top Gun instructor, which I assume means therefore you you had attended Top Gun also as a student prior to that how did how does that work how do you how does one get selected you get the sense that these are the best of the best but what what percentage of aviators will eventually go through top gun as students and then what percentage go on to become instructors how elite the school is this yeah that's a great question so um you know my my story i was um i did nrotc out at the university of california in san diego i'd grown up on the west coast and applied to West Coast schools and was really interested in, in going into naval aviation 
actually starting way back as a kid, I was, um, you know, four years old going to air shows with my dad and Mott mm -hmm. at Moffett Field. Um, uh, my dad's a private pilot, so we would go fly in a, you know, a little light plane. I loved going to the airport. And when I was 13, the movie came out and I was actually, I was trying to figure out how I wanted to be a pilot, but I definitely wanted to be a pilot, you know, Navy, <laughs> Air Force, Marines, uh, Army, civilian, airlines, you know, just, I, I was casting a, you know, really wide net at the time. And if anything was probably most enamored with the Air Force airplanes at the time. And, and then the movie came out and it was just really obvious to me what the path was. <laughs> it became like planes off ships. Yeah. Yeah. The, right. You know, the whole thing, every, everything about it was, was pretty awesome to a 13 year old. And um, sure. most people, um, of a fairly, fairly wide generational sort of swath had a similar reaction. And, and anybody that I flew with that said, Oh, I had nothing to do with the movie. You, you know, uh, you're lying, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, so that, you know, I was, I was fortunate to have that. I, <clears throat> I feel like, and I, I think this, the second movie is going to have a similar generational impact. That'll be good for not just for Navy or for, people, you know, that are motivated to serve their country, which, you know, so there's certainly a recruiting value. And I think it, it'll raise the competition on those things. And that's, that's always healthy and good. Um, but I think that, you know, the movie had just a, a, an overall impact on the first one. And, and I think this one is definitely having just an overall impact that I think is, is positive for the country, positive for, for certainly aviation, um, we could dive into all kinds of other messages that are, I think, you know, positive that come in there in terms of, um, you know, I love the Phoenix character as an example, you know, the, that was just a great example of a, of a warrior, um, a leader, somebody who's super squared away, confident, um, calm, cool, collected, uh, who, oh, by the way, happens to be a woman. And, but that's not even, it's not even a thing. I like how you said yeah. that, who happens to be a woman. Yeah, right. it's just right. it's, she's accepted, she's respected. There's nothing, there's no plot built around that. Absolutely. You brought it back to the human element. Uh, you were, as as we said earlier on, uh, you led some of the character uh, formation work at the United States Naval Academy in terms of character development. And, and here, sort of literally, um, you know, we see Maverick in 1986, um, and now we see Maverick again in 2022. In terms of character arc, uh, how's he done? Has he matured as a pilot? Has he matured as a human being? Um, you know, if you were his uh, commander or friend, would you be would you be pleased with the man he has become? Yeah, I I, I loved the uh, the Maverick character. I you know kind of almost embarrassed to admit that you know how how could you you just kind of get pulled in right <laughs> and um right. both movies how could you not like you know the Maverick character um. But in terms of a character arc, what a great question. And you, you talked about as a pilot and as a person. So I think, you know, there's, there's just a kind of a, a great little moment, uh, where, um, where, he, yeah, I think it's Hangman leaves his wingman. He goes, Oh, leaving your wingman. You know, I haven't seen that move in a while. And so that kind of marked the, the wisdom that he's gained over the years. And yet he, you know, just five minutes earlier, he had, you know, destroyed this, the dark star, you know, at Mach 10.3 or whatever. And like, well, that was a pretty reckless, irresponsible thing to do right. with this incredible machine that, right. you know, is, is may or may not be a real thing, you know, who knows, but a great, uh, you know, they did a really good job with the, with 
creating that little plot. But you know, it was, it was it was fun. But it was like, well, he still hasn't quite figured it all out if he's yep. doing this. And then, but then they also showed you know just how refined his skill level was at employing um, the F eighteen and and so I thought there was definitely he definitely was a he showed a lot more wisdom as a pilot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, not perfect. Certainly sure. as a, from a character standpoint, you know, the, the scene that just really comes to mind when you ask that Mark is um, the scene where he's that, you know, kind of on the couch or, or, or whatever with uh, Penny Benjamin mm-hmm. and she's asking him about uh rooster. And there's this sort of parallel in the freedom that she's giving her own daughter and that, that Maverick's struggling with, with her, with rooster. But then she asked the question, you know, well, what, where did this all come from? And he says, well, I, you know, I pulled his papers and didn't let him go to the Academy. And she's, she asked why. And he, he reveals that it's because his mom had asked, right. The Meg Ryan character, Carol Bradshaw, or so, you know, now it's kind of unfolding, but what was really, I thought a powerful character moment in that scene, it hit me when I saw it both times, it kind of had an emotional reaction to it was that um, when she asked, well, why'd you do that? And he said, well, she asked. And then the immediate was like, well, you could let yourself off the hook if he knew. And his answer is, no, I didn't tell him because he's going to resent me no matter what, but I don't want him resenting his mom also. So I'm going to take that. And so it, it really kind of brought into focus this lose-lose situation for, for him, the really tough, you know, set of circumstances for Rooster. Um, and that he saw that, you know, amongst these, there, there's, there's two wrong answers really, but the least wrong answer is for me to protect his mom even after she's passed so that he doesn't have any ill will towards his, his mom. And I just thought that was, you know, really powerful. So, you know, and I think it really endears all of us to, to Pete Mitchell, the, you know, the captain who's been, who's this sort of dinosaur legacy that the Navy can't get rid of because of Iceman and whatever, because we still need him, right? The Navy needs Mm -hmm. Maverick, but really it showed, I think just a lot of character in that scene. And I thought it was brilliantly woven into the whole thing. And then, you know, you get the the happy resolution at the end with Rooster and all that. But um, I, I thought that was great from a character standpoint. Right, right. Well, that's good. You, you, you know, I'm not sure it warrants a call sign update, but, you know, yeah. it'd be fun to play with. You know, oh, what should his call sign be now, right? Yeah, that was, it was really, you know, it's one of the, that's really what, when you, we get into ethics, right? It's usually just about really tough decisions where there's mm-hmm. often not a right answer or there's a, a most right out of, of really tough choices or it's the least wrong answer. And, right. You no, know, that's right. And so, and what different things do you use to, to tie into that? And you know, there's some other kind of ethical components to the movie too, but I thought from a character standpoint, that was, that was powerful. And that, and, and I, I like what you say there. And I think it, it puts the, you know, maybe the positive spin to the call sign Maverick in the sense that there are rules uh, that one is expected to follow, but we know that you know, especially when the first shot is fired. But really, when when the rules meet reality, uh, there has to be almost a kind of, and I want to say this, you know, in a very qualified, very careful way. But there almost has to be a kind of ethical or moral entrepreneurship when it comes to how does this rule, without violating the rule, how does this rule meet reality here? How does this play out? And because presumably you don't want everybody to be an absolute maverick when it comes to following orders, but neither, 
I imagine, do we want automatons who simply follow orders? And there has to be some sort of kind of a golden mean in between these two approaches to what it means to be a moral person or a rule follower. Right. Yeah, I agree. And then this ties back to your, you know, we kind of po we didn't get into it too much, but this whole, you know, drone versus, you know, the pilot in the box thing. Um, you know, when when do the humans need to be in the loop and do they need right. to be in the cockpit to make that decision to to put themselves in the battle space to to have the situational awareness, but also to to know when the rule doesn't make sense. Because yeah, the, right. the machine's gonna follow the rule every time. Whatever you program it to do, it will do. You can program decision making in with AI, but it's still going to be within the limits of what you imagine to give it a decision on, right. um, and, or that it can learn in the in the small amount of time that it would have to learn in combat, which is still just you know it's a it's a looping sort of decision looping process, and so you can only anticipate so many things. And sometimes I think um, we you know we kind of fall in love with it. Oh, we can it'll figure it out. And yeah, right. Sometimes right. You, the rules don't make sense or the scenario is presenting variables that the, that the algorithm isn't taking into a, an account, um, but a human will. And I think that's important. No, that's right. Um, last thing I wanted to touch on, and you've just started to edge into it now, is there, there is, we discussed earlier, I think a tension within the film uh, that plays out in, in terms that you could call mission effectiveness on one side and then force protection on the other. And we, you know, we, yeah. we, we teach these scenarios at the Academy and at the Academy, we add into that um, non-combatant immunity, which because of the way the mission plays out, it's in an isolated Valley. Happily, we don't have to worry about non-combatant immunity, which yeah. the algorithms would really begin, you know, to, to spin uh, when you add that element into it, when do you fire? When do you not fire? Um, but just in terms of how it plays out, you've got this vital mission that has to happen. We gather um, you know, to destroy a, a uranium enrichment plant, right? Um, but the the ingress into the target area is incredibly dangerous. I I think it reminds us of the Death Star, right? You got the yeah, right? you got the cavern run or the trench run, I think they call it. Yeah, you got the you know the the gun emplacements. So you've got the whole scenario, and you've got the very narrow air duct you're supposed to somehow right. Put yeah. Through. So um, you know these guys have to use the force, right, in order right. to to hit their target. But you've got this tension where you've got the cyclone character who, um, and you, you, you'll you'll say this more more precisely, he's the commander at maybe the strategic level. He gives the orders down to Maverick, who has to to do it at the operational level. And cyclone seems particularly, um, uh, I don't want to say preoccupied by, but he he seems to particularly emphasize mission effectiveness. Like we've got to destroy this target. But Maverick keeps you know sort of pushing back at him and say and and bring everybody home, right? And bring everybody home. And he seems more to emphasize force protection. And he does it in a paradoxical way. You got to fly super fast through this incredibly dangerous canyon in order to give yourself paradoxically the best opportunity to survive the whole thing. Can you walk us through that, this tension between mission effectiveness and force protection, how that plays out in the movie, how it plays out in real life? Yeah, that's great. And um, I think you you teed up that paradox really well. And I, I think they did a really nice job of building this in and, you know, and then they, they really dial up the, the force protection piece by putting rooster in the, in the mix, right? This, right. he's trying to protect not just the other seven crews, but in particular, this one pilot, because he's, he's already feels responsible for his 
the death of his dad. Right. And so it's so real to Maverick. And I thought, I thought they did a really nice job with that. And um, so, yeah, so kind of stepping back big picture, what we would call that, that, um, and by the way, I agree, this is, you know, this could be a scenario in, in an ethics class at the Naval Academy, right. we did some different ones, you know, lone survivor and others in the same, same scenario, but same sort of set of tensions, right. And so something the mids would probably chomp on to jump into this one. Um, but yeah, but what we would, what we would call that in a, from a mission planning um, and execution standpoint is commander's intent, right. So commander's intent is going to, is going to come down. It'll either come from the air wing commander uh, who we call CAG and that's uh, a captain or the strike group commander who's an admiral one star usually, or maybe the fleet commander um, who's a three star potentially could go all the way back to sec def or the president. If it's, you know, the stakes are, are warranted. Um, but it's going to be somebody in the chain of command of the, of the squadron um, above the squadron commander level, which is at the, the Navy rank of commander level. So it'll be a, a captain or higher is going to define commander's intent. Uh, and commander's intent will usually be a, a one line, maybe two, but a declarative statement that will say the importance of getting to the target. And, and if blue losses, meaning our own team, the blue team, um, are acceptable or not acceptable. Um, and so it could be, you know, target destruction not required, blue losses not acceptable, meaning we're going to give this our, our best shot, but we're not going to go the extra, you know, risk level where we could have someone shot down sometimes. And I've flown on missions that were target destruction required and not. And so mm -hmm. um, usually if target destruction is required, then blue losses must therefore be acceptable. And that will be um, derived. And so if target destruction is required, then you could argue that, you know, the, the cyclone character, the air boss character probably wouldn't be the one setting commander's intent in the real world, but that's okay. Um, it's, you know, the, uh, probably someone at about that rank level might be. So um, his, his approach is we got to get to the target no matter what. And that's rooster's approach. Also, yeah, we right. got to hit the target after that, we'll take our chances. And Maverick's approach is if you do that, you probably aren't going to make it home. I think we could do both or have a chance to do both if we can get in fast enough that they can't react. Um, and so, you know, there's some, you could poke a bunch of holes in the way that the scenario is designed and whatever, but it's still, it's still cool and fun. And that's where the, 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 the Maverick character has this, you know, one off incredible ability to fly that, that Iceman knows he's, he's the one with that, with that, that, singular solution that he only he could figure out and that's why he brings him back and protects him and whatever just makes for a great movie i think in the real world um it would you know there's some artificialities of the terrain and whatever but but it's completely plausible that we'll have a mission where blue losses are acceptable especially for a target such as that you know where there's like a, a nuclear a weapons of mass destruction sort of scale you go to a utilitarian sort of argument um it becomes a, a really clear decision and using that as one, one tool, for example, where, Hey, we, we might lose a few pilots, but we've got to prevent this nuclear weapon from, from going out or something. Um, I think that's very, very plausible. And we planned missions with, you know, across the whole spectrum in different scenarios. Um, so, you know, I think it's a, it's a good tension and the answer isn't always clear. It, it's going to depend on the value of the target and, and you're certainly going to do everything you can to get 
people in and out. And I do think that was, was, you know, as he slowly wins over, I think it was, um, Warlock is the, the Nautic commander, which is the Naval Air War Development Center. That's the admiral that runs the Top Gun school and the other school, uh, commanding officers for the different platforms and a bunch of other different functions at, at Nautic. But, um, so, you know, he's, he's rooting for him because he gets the, the, sort of the tactical brilliance right, right. of this thing. If we could actually pull this off, we'd have the best possible chance on both ends. And then you've got Cyclone, the air boss saying, I, I can't take that risk in training. And I don't, I almost don't care about the backside. We'll, we'll take our chances, pilot in the box or whatever. As long as that target's destroyed, we'll deal with the consequences, but I'm not going to take that much risk in training, I will risk it on the egress, which is what we call, you know, post, post target, post uh, impacts. Um, how do you get home? How do you egress? And they call it the ECP, right? They get to flow to the ECP in the movie. That's the egress control point is a, a point in the system or on the ground that, you know, is visibly significant that everyone can kind of head towards to try to get safe, get well. So, um, you know, I, I think that tension was good. And, they did a, you know, just some little subtleties. This I picked up the second time I saw it was when, um, when Cyclone, the air boss, is given the brief in the carrier hangar, which is not where you brief, but still a cool scene. Um, he, you know, he says, "Get home safe," right? He doesn't say, you know, "Godspeed" or "Good hunting" or something like that. He says, "Get home safe," which was kind of his full circle recognition right. that that Mavericks are best shot. His tactics are the best shot. He should be lead, leading this. Regardless of the realism of the, you know, the the way they build the scenario and all these missiles just ripping off the rail as they go skying out of this canyon and all this stuff, um, you know, was, I think you could you could sort of abstract all that to the ethical tension that you brought mm -hmm. up. Okay. It it does depend, but in this scenario, the the way they've constructed it, <clears throat> blue losses are acceptable. Target destruction is required. Blue losses are acceptable, and it's going to be really hard to get in, and it's going to be even harder to get out. Right, right. Yeah, there, there almost seems uh, almost a missing scene where I would have liked because you, you see that full circle with Cyclone, as you said, which which I didn't I didn't catch, and so I appreciate that. Um, obviously, it's implied in Maverick's uh, character that he recognizes blue losses might happen. Uh, but I almost would have liked to have seen that scene just to drive it home for the audience where Maverick says the target has to be taken out. Yeah. Um, and we might not come back. I um, mean, that's built in, that's implied, that's all clear, but um, they're, they're, because it seems to me that an inherent in combat command is a requirement for something like callousness and callousness sounds like a pejorative, but if it's simply the thickening of one's skin, um, to do necessary things that are hard to do, whether it's disciplining your children or being willing to spend the lives of your men um, for the sake of the mission. Um, you know, when every part of you wants to see your men and women come home, um, there, you know, there has to be a kind of thickening of one's skin, it seems to me, if you're going to be an effective military commander. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I, I, I think that's one of the reasons why it takes so long to, to matriculate into those positions and mm -hmm. the many different selections. And, and you really won't know until you're faced with one of those decisions, 
if if you can make that and you make sort of you know you're making risk calculations all the way through and you you no one you learn through experience right um when when you've taken too much risk or not enough risk no it's that so that's yeah. fascinating so that that brings in all all sorts of considerations from a commander's reputation um you know do i know that this person has our welfare in mind um, right. and if i do if i can trust that then you've just given me orders that seem to hang me out to dry but I can trust that you probably know something I don't know. And so game on. Thank you for the decades you spent being out there. Thank you for the years you spent preparing mids to get out there. And thank you for your time today talking about what I think is uh, the best sequel in, in cinema history. Yeah, I agree. And uh, loved it. Probably will go see it again before too long. would be my guess. <laughs> Thanks Excellent. so much for, for the time, Mark. It was really a pleasure getting to chat with you again and, um, you know, what, what fun it was kind of unpacking some of this stuff. And so, so thanks for, for all the, the great thought provoking questions. I really enjoyed it. Well, excellent. You're a perfect interlocutor. So much appreciated. Thanks. We'll see you, my friend. Be well. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.